welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. Welcome to our very first podcast. I'm an Episcopal priest in the Diocese of California, where I serve as the rector of Christ Episcopal Church in Los Altos in the heart of Silicon Valley. I'm also an Episcopal priest, and I lead an ecumenical study center called Newbigin House of Studies. It's an affiliate of the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. I'm also the project executive for Vital and Thriving, which is a ministry learning hub being developed for the congregations of the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California, and we hope in time for many other congregations. I'm so excited. We're creating a space where congregations like mine or not like mine can come together for support and encouragement. We're producing this podcast as one resource among many, which will include a steady stream of webinars and trainings beginning this month. That's right. Our congregations are emerging from the pandemic. And like everything else about our lives, church has really, really changed over the last two years. Vital and Thriving is a space for mutual learning for the moment we're in. And I really, really hope the resources we're developing and sharing will be truly helpful. But Vital and Thriving is really more about, it's more than just resources, okay? It's a pathway for seed funding for Diocal congregations who wanna engage together in collective discernment as they try to find their next steps. We've actually been experimenting with this idea with a pilot group of 13 congregations, including my own. Thank you for being an early adopter. What can I say? I'm a risk taker. So we call this piece of Vital and Thriving Partnership for the Missional Church. We'll be saying a lot more about that in the coming weeks and sharing information about it, because starting this fall, any congregation in the diocese can participate, and I hope they all will eventually. It's a three-year cohort-based process for mutual learning and, thanks to the New Horizons Capital Campaign, a pathway for seed funding as we discern where God is leading us. And I will just say to our listeners, I realize that's a lot of informational and institutional blah, blah, blah. And in most of our podcasts, we will not be doing that. But for this first episode, we felt like we needed to explain ourselves just a little bit. So our guest today is someone who has over three decades of experience in this kind of work. He's the Reverend Dr. Patrick Kiefert. And I'm thrilled to say he's our new Director of Research and Consulting at Newbigin House. Pat served as a Lutheran pastor in Chicago, and he had a long career as a professor of systematic theology at Luther Seminary. He's the author of several books and founder of the Church Innovations Institute, which has now become a part of Newbegin House and has worked with hundreds of congregations and dozens of denominations on four continents. Welcome as our very first guest, Pat. Oh, it's good to be here. I wish my mom were still alive to hear such introductions, but, well. <laughs> she would be very proud, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, uh, I certainly hope so, though I don't think she'd believe it. See? But anyway, thank you very much. It, it, it is an honor. 
uh, to be the first guest. So, Pat, maybe we could start by discussing a word that many will not have heard before. Missional. What does that word mean, and why is it important? So the first thing is it has something to do with time. Uh, it's the time we're in, and right now in North America and Western Europe, uh, the, the context within which the church functions has dramatically changed. So I like to say we're in a missional era. Uh, one of my favorite scholars, a guy by the name of George Ling, who uh, is, is a Brit, uh, describes it uh, really very helpfully. He says, you know, uh, historically, uh, the, the role of the church was to be right in the center of the village and all, all the hills uh, in the town uh, went toward the church. So whatever was going on in the culture in life, if you just let yourself roll, you'd end up in church. Now, the church is on a little hill outside of town. It's not even tall enough for anybody to notice. And if you're going to get there, it, it's going to take a lot of effort. Uh, and I find that the, uh, the key piece about uh, what makes our time a missional time. The second thing I'd, I'd have to say is um, missional church grows out of a movement that puts its primary emphasis, and here the fancy term is missio dei. It's about God's mission. And that may seem, uh, you know, obvious, except for, for a very, very long time, uh, in many ways, since even before the Reformation, uh, the notion of the mission of the, it was the mission of the church, and it was not about God. So starting in the 1950s in World, in World uh, Council of Churches, this focus shifted and began to say it's God's mission, and more importantly, it grows out of the very nature of God, the Trinitarian God. So that's the second thing. It's about God, it's God's mission, and, and, that's the, and it grows out of a Trinitarian God. Third thing, when uh, I say missional, is it's God's mission with the cosmos that invites the church into it. Most of the prayers I hear in congregations go something like this. Oh God, we got this mission. Uh, would you help us with our mission? Hmm. This is a huge shift when all of a sudden God is engaged with this uh, creation, with this cosmos, and God is inviting us into that. Uh, the fourth thing is that God is doing that primarily through the work of the Holy Spirit. So a missional church has a huge emphasis upon the movement of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit uh, cultivating communities, both in and outside of the church. Uh, but of course, at the heart it, for us, 
is that community which represents the time, the space, and the power of God in Jesus. And that is, uh, when we say missional church, the focus will be on equipping God's people for mission in their everyday uh, lives. And the reason, those five, uh, if you want to read about this in greater detail, uh, my uh, colleagues uh, at Luther Seminary, Dwight Shiley, who's an Episcopalian, and uh, Craig Van Gelder, who's Reformed, uh, wrote a really fine book on uh, the missional church movement, uh, especially in uh, the English-speaking world. So, Pat, I heard a joke on Facebook the other day. The easiest way to understand what type of church someone goes to is to ask, do your pastors dress like hippies, rappers, business leaders, or wizards? So for for our Episcopal listeners, uh, I think the easy answer is uh, wizards. It's just so true. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. So, but it's ironic because, uh, you know, we most definitely, I speak for Claire and myself, uh, we most definitely are not. And, you know, most of the priests that I'm having conversations with are Not simply, even Wizard of Oz's? Not even, yeah, they're not even behind the curtain. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they are... We are we are we are like unwizards, uh, regardless of how we dress. Uh, but we're exhausted. Our congregational leaders are, you know, uh, exhausted uh, in this uh, this state of languishing. Really, I think uh, uh, coming out of the pandemic, you've written and uh, you referenced this just a little bit earlier when you were talking about this idea that God is the chief actor. Uh, that is uh, the one primarily active in mission, uh, in, in building beloved community. Could you say a little more about that? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try not to go on like I did in the last one. Uh, to me, the heart of the, of the journey um, is, is about discovering God as the chief partner, both in our lives personally and in the world. And uh, to me, that's a very practical business. Uh, I know it sounds like Twilight Zone stuff, uh, if any of you remember Twilight Zone. I grew up on it. But this is really down to earth. Asking the question, what is God's preferred and promised future? And I don't have an answer to that question. Each local church is going to have to discover that. You know, Pat, when I am in conversation with my colleagues who are feeling exhausted, um, I think we receive this idea of God already moving in the world as such a tremendous relief. Like that shift from, oh, we are working so hard and we have to make God somehow show up to God is already showing up and our work is to kind of pay attention and stay awake to that and and help each other to notice where that's happening. I mean, I feel that like in my body as a relief. Um, I want to draw you out on another interesting concept and that uh, revolves around this word adaptive. What does it mean to say that our challenge as congregations are primarily adaptive ones? 
Okay, first you want to distinguish adaptive from technical. A technical challenge is, uh, you know, it's, it's really serious. Uh, and uh, it, it, congregations often are just piled deep in technical challenges. But those challenges, there are answers to them. And often all you have to do is, you know, work with some other congregation or some expert or whatever, and you can, you can figure those out. Adaptive challenges have these characteristics. One, uh, you can't even figure out what the issue is. You know what you're looking at on the surface is the tip of the iceberg, but you have no idea what's below the surface. Number two, your gut tells you this is life or death. I can't ignore whatever this challenge is uh, because it's life or death. And number three, I know I'm not up to it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is above my competence. Or a lot of times I say it's above my pay grade. Uh, adaptive challenges have these characteristics. So they require a very different approach. And the church like it or not, because of this massive shift to whatever terms you want to use, I call the new missional era. Some people focus on the post-Christendom, but I, I don't find that as helpful a language. Uh, but in this new missional era, man, we don't know. It's, it is a, it's a great, exciting set of possibilities, but it's also the possibility we go out of business. Uh, one of my favorite uh, scholars of congregational life, uh, Nancy Ammerman, puts it this way. Um, death is a part of the ecology of the church. Yeah. Hmm. You know, we are offering resources to congregations through Vital and Thriving. Uh, because we, we we also believe life is part of that ecology, but I appreciate you naming what you did about death. Um, but we're also inviting them to go even more deep with this partnership for the missional church. Um, and the central question we are sitting with is, how do you unlock your congregation's capacity to build beloved community? Now, I should say, um, beloved community is, that is a phrase, uh, it's become increasingly more well-known, but it's used a lot in the Episcopal Church. It's used a lot in the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area uh, as a way to talk about what Jesus called the kingdom of God. So uh, maybe a way to frame it is, uh, how do we unlock our capacity to discern what God is bringing, uh, doing, calling us to join in. Yeah, and I think to be even more specific in a particular congregation and community, what does that journey look like? You're asking me? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, uh, I, I want to underline, even though uh, one of the realities of an adaptive challenge is you die. Right. Uh, that's not uh, that's not always failure. OK, 
But more importantly, and believe me, I've helped congregations die for the sake of mission. That's, I've done it as, uh, four continents and, and lots of different cultures and languages. More importantly, though, I firmly believe God has given all the necessary gifts of the Spirit to every local church to accomplish God's preferred future. But what I find in very real terms is, number one, most congregations don't even imagine God cares that much about them in particular that there is a concrete particular reason why that congregation is there and that God does have a preferred future for that congregation. Either because they think, you know, well, God does, you know, deals with the big picture, but, you know, our congregation, give me a break. Or worse, which is more common, God calls me, but I don't know about the rest of these people. Uh, you know, I take care of my own faith, they take care of theirs. The notion that there's a communal movement of God, uh, that's a big challenge, but it's also delightful. I just love watching people come alive to that. Now that takes a while. It's a real journey. It's a step-by-step -step journey. Now we, we've been doing it for a long time, so we've made lots of mistakes. We'll make some new ones. Uh, I know that. And in that process, we'll have to discover what God is, is up to here. It's a three to five year process. And the first part of that journey is built around listening. Listening, 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 and discovering uh, the partners every congregation has. First partner, of course, is God. Uh, they're people within the congregation, there are people outside of the congregation, and I firmly believe there are things in the physical environment that are actually partners in God's mission. And so through listening, we begin to discover those. And then beyond listening, you also, you, you encourage congregations to actually begin to experiment with, with ideas. Yep. Um, I, I firmly believe in uh, the process of innovation, which has at its heart uh, an experimenting. It's a risk-taking. Uh, I, I, we have a term, Christian innovation is a process of failure growing out of a Christian imagination of reconciliation that leads to a positive outcome. Uh, and until congregations learn to experiment, fail, learn from the failure, learn how to limit their risks so they can genuinely innovate, uh, there's probably not much of a future for them because the environment, the context has changed so radically. What I love about the cohort idea of a, a congregations doing this in sync with a group of other congregations is there's, there is that opportunity to, to fail together. <laughs> that is to act to learn to innovate and and reflect on it together essentially 
we're creating a holding space for that holy activity. Yeah, very early on, you know, over a quarter of a century ago, we discovered uh, at Church Innovations that congregations learn more from one another than they do outside consultants. The second thing we learned is congregations don't want to learn from one another. <laughs> um, That's great. <laughs> well, I mean, if if they did, they would, right? Uh, fair enough, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's kind of a duh. And then third, we discovered that when they tend to learn from one another, it's to go to some big uh, teaching congregation. And um, at, at those events, and I've attended them, I mean, believe me, uh, some of which are no longer in business, uh, great conferences, sometimes inspiring, but they were almost always show and tell. And anybody knows anything about adult learning knows that show and tell is the most ineffective way for adults to learn. So in other words, when the church turned to adult learning, congregation to congregation, we generally use the least effective. So we've spent 30 years trying to figure out how do you help congregations learn from one another? Uh, it, you know, it's not, this is not rocket science. <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of very common sense ploddingness to it, but it's staying focused and believing that the Holy Spirit really is up to something. I mean, really, you know, not, not Twilight Zone, but really ordinary day-to-day -day stuff. You know, Pat, when you were talking about the experimenting and and failure, like risk and failure being so central to learning, it just struck me, you know, we're going to share this episode in Holy Week. And I think so few of the congregants that I've served in my time as a priest really see the story of Holy Week and the story of the Passion as something that is practically reflecting their life as Christians in the world. Um, and I just think that's such a powerful connection, thinking of the scandal of the crucified God, the God who in the eyes of the world failed, was hung up on a cross, and how that is the doorway to something new and, and unimaginable until you move through it. Um, so... Pathetic failure, literally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pathetic failure. Well, I think that's important to just linger on a name because at least my experience of parishioners and Episcopal churches in the Bay Area is that we are very successful people. <laughs> we are very smart. We are very concerned to um, accomplish what we set out to accomplish um, earnestly. But I do think this um, pivot, you know, popularly we might call it in the education movement, like a growth mindset that it's okay to fail. And actually we learn through our failures much more than we learn through our successes and giving ourselves that permission to do it together, uh, I think is so powerful. So you've described this arc of, of listening, um, experimenting, and then focusing, reflecting, self-reflecting and collective reflecting. Um, how does the pandemic affect this kind of work? What is the research showing? Uh -huh. the, the sort of research I'm going to draw upon, so you can go and take a look at some of it yourself. 
some really interesting stuff in the fact study at Hartford Institute, where the first, you know, they were doing their, what, 15,000 congregations around the world study update every five years. And um, <clears throat> uh, two-thirds had already filled out the forms before the uh, pandemic hit. Uh, part of what started to happen is quite clear, is this languishing. Now, I'm going to use a technical definition of languishing. Uh, it is not depression, uh, but it's not, it's not energized. It's lying in between, and there's a, a high enough level of anxiety that people even to get the ordinary things done, uh, become exhausted. The list of what is expected seems to have grown so much longer. And then, then you have, uh, interestingly enough, you know, uh, the larger the congregation, um, the more frightening the realities uh, the pandemic seemed to be. Uh, and, you know, uh, one uh, senior pastor uh, who I have huge regard for, and I've known her for, gosh, it seems at least 20 years, she says, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, right now the best we can do is about half attendance, including the Zoom. Yeah. And that, that's scary. Uh, and uh, most of that kind of broad research also shows that where there were fault lines, those have been exposed. Um, so if, if there were uh, people who were attending maybe once a month and they haven't attended for two years, they're pretty well comfortable not attending. And that's uh, the larger the congregation, the more likely that's the case. Smaller congregations, interestingly enough, uh, have been able to retain uh, some of that sticky uh, sociology. We can talk more about that. Well, I actually, I want to pick up on that, Pat. Um, you, talking about languishing, one of the people I started reading during the pandemic was this industrial psychologist, uh, Adam Grant. Uh, he kind of described it as a languishing as this place between, you know, uh, depression and flourishing. And essentially, if, if I recall, he basically said most of us are there. <laughs> so, so many, many of us are. The pandemic has kind of put us there. Yeah, I don't but, have any problems identifying with it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't either. Um, but when it comes to inviting a congregation into this process where there's, uh, you know, uh, listening and reflection and trying things, you know, when people are just exhausted, um, it can be overwhelming to even contemplate that kind of, you know, uh, energy and activity. Would you say that uh, partnership for the missional church is really more for a larger, more well-resourced congregation? Uh, or do you see this also being something that can really be for a small congregation, a struggling small congregation? Uh, so we got a lot of experience with both and everything in between. I, the largest congregation I've ever worked with had 30,000 on Sunday. Um, 
that's a very different animal than 85% of the parishes in the uh, Diocese of Canterbury, the oldest uh, Christian diocese in the Church of England, where over 85% can't afford to have a full-time priest. Um, which means, you know, a really great Sunday for a lot of those congregations, like Easter Sunday is 12 people. So we've done the full you know, let's get our feet on the ground about the Church of England, especially. But that was also true of Presbyterians and Mennonites in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, so if you've got a dozen people, it was good enough for Jesus, I always say. I imagine, uh, you know, we can make good on it. I really do. And, and it's just a different kind of process uh, than uh, a congregation where you've got large numbers of people. Here, I want to underline, this is a process that focuses and was and grew out of cultural work. Uh, we first did this uh, with congregations in the Seward Peninsula in Alaska, among Inupiates, uh, who in their own language were not literate, because it was gen it generally not uh, learned uh, in schools uh, for the older generation. And this process worked in villages where, you know, there was 50 foot of permafrost. Uh, no hot running water, no cold running water. And where everything was done through very traditional uh, community conversation. Uh, the point here is it starts with the actual culture and it's addressing culture rather than organizational change. So that's going to make a huge difference. If you're dealing with Palo Alto, let me tell you, that's a very different culture than uh, what we're going to find in Redwood. Uh, or uh, you don't even have to cross language barriers. You cross language barriers and you're dealing with even uh, more profound cultural difference, but we begin there. Second thing is, uh, what our research shows is that uh, in those congregations where the journey is taken seriously, uh, this is energizing, not exhausting, but energizing, even in this uh, really difficult, uh, uh, COVID-related uh, circumstance, not just in the United States, but in South Africa uh, and in Australia. We've worked with congregations over these last two years. Uh, they have been energized. Why? Because you see it's addressing uh, deep questions that have been ignored in busy lives. One of the things the pandemic has done is it's given people who have an opportunity to slow their lives down. Pat, thank you for speaking with us today. Um, I imagine for you know many of the folks listening, when it comes to their church's future, um, they're feeling anxious, maybe a little less anxious after listening to you, but they're feeling anxious and fearful. What encouragement can you give to a listener? 
Well, the first thing, anxiety is the price of being alive. Uh, show me a non-anxious person and I'll show you a dead one. Uh, so anxiety is a sign of life. Two, if we can uh, genuinely open our hearts, minds, wills, imaginations to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in that, that's doable. Uh, we can turn those anxieties into fears and actually act on those fears and discover uh, really positive futures. Uh, I know that. That's not theory, okay? I, I've done, been doing it. Uh, uh, now, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, so I'm not taking credit here. But the Spirit shows up. <laughs> to me, is so amazing. I just... Uh, Amen. It's very hard for me. I'm a, I come from a highly rational tradition, and I'm trained as a philosopher and in the social sciences as well as theology. And I have constantly been brought to the reasonable reflection that the best way to explain what happens in these congregations is to say the Holy Spirit has acted as a reasonable judgment. Thank you for that word of encouragement. Uh, so, Pat, Scott, we have come now to the lightning round, a tradition we're beginning right now uh -oh. on the Vital and Thriving podcast. So, Pat, you'll have 20 seconds or less to answer each of these three questions. Are you ready? Yep. <laughs> okay. First, what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Go. Some really good Texas brisket. My goodness. Oh. Ooh, let me tell you. Mouth-watering, melt in your mouth. You know, cholesterol, you might as well have just, you know, but so delicious. I'm sorry. I should, I've also had some hot dishes in Minnesota that weren't bad. Yeah. Not bad, which is what you say in Minnesota when you... <laughs> you have to eat hot dishes. <laughs> what is your first memory of a worship service? Go. So I sat between my grandma and my mama. Um, my grandma ran her finger underneath the liturgy in the, in the, in the book, not because she needed it, but so I could follow it so that by the time I was three, I could read. I literally became mm -hmm. literate in the liturgy and I can remember being left in the pew when they went to communion. Wow and the sense of abandonment. Mm. And yet also, <laughs> I can remember, uh, especially my grandma coming back and smelling of wine. <laughs> and believe me, by this time in my life, I knew what wine was. <laughs> mm. I, I said, Grandma, that, what's that smell? And she said, well, that's our Lord. Mm. <laughs> And it sure smelled like wine to me. <laughs> but if grandma said it was our Lord, it was. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male 
that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should know about? Let me give you a few, and most of them are, are my former students. Uh, Terry Elton, who knows more about youth ministry and intergenerational ministry and leadership than really almost anyone I know. Uh, Michael Chan, uh, he's got a great uh, podcast that's called Gospel Beautiful. Um, I would say Nadia Boltz Weber, also one of my former students, incredible. Uh, <laughs> you know, I listen to her and I go, wow. Uh, Lenny Duncan, an African American pastor uh, who now has left the pastorate for I consider to be really good God's mission reasons, but his podcast, great stuff in his book, Dear Church. Um, and Rachel Stout, I'm going to leave with her name because Rachel's going to be uh, my partner with Scott in our work. And Rachel uh, is the head of the Innovating Church podcast. And she does a great job. So, uh, and that doesn't even start the ones I regularly listen to, like Re Reggie Nell, uh, who's the dean of the School of Theology at Stellenbosch University, where I'm adjunct faculty, and uh, Gordon Damas, who is uh, uh, faculty at uh, UNISA, the University of South Africa. All, All right. of those Pat, I think, I aren't think you white. Have hit, you have hit your limit of resources. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for sharing them with us. Hey, and my friend, thank you for being our first guest. Uh, and we really do look forward to seeing you here in the Bay Area very, very soon. Yeah, me too. Peace to you. So, Claire, what did you learn from Pat today? I really appreciated hearing him talk about the idea of a missional church and why we're in a missional era and what kind of marks that. Um, and I think the thing that struck me most was this reality of coming to a place, um, he said this in response to the adaptive question, of, of not knowing and of letting ourselves not know. And it really reminded me that if we think we're supposed to come to God with our mission and with all of our great ideas, it's really hard to let ourselves genuinely acknowledge when we don't know. Um, but if we understand that uh, the not knowing place can be the place of encounter, can be the place where we become open to what God is calling us to do or mm -hmm. be. Um, that just seemed uh, really, uh, again, kind of relieving, just hopeful to me. Yeah. Hope is what is really what I came away with as well. Um, I, I loved the, just the reminder of, God being at work, uh, of the Holy Spirit being, you know, moving creatively and powerfully, and the invitation for us to, you know, prayerfully and through listening, trying things, uh, joining with, with what God is doing in the world. And I also appreciate you uh, reminding us that, you know, we're coming into the season of Easter. Um, mm. I, I recently reread a book by... 
the physicist and theologian John Polkinghorne, um, and uh, called I think it's called Chaos, Quarks, and Christianity. <laughs> uh, but he talks about the resurrection as the seed event of new creation, and it's this reminder that you know new creation really has begun, and we can't you know through our anxiety, our fear, our exhaustion. Uh, this we violent thriving really is an invitation to try to reconnect with that hope. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you say that, I'm reminded of that passage from scripture where we hear like nothing can separate us from the love of God, and I think we often hear that in the context of like, oh, no wrongdoing can keep us from God, or God will forgive us. But I also think there's a way in which it helps to be reminded that like. God can work with us even when we are tired. (laughs) Like God can find us and um, help us actually find our way out of the hard, heavy place. Yeah. Well, it's it's a religion based on the resurrection of the dead, so so that certainly (laughs) ought that certainly ought to be something we can count on, right? Hey, so who is who is going to be our next exciting guest? Well, it is none other than our bishop, the Right Reverend Dr. Mark Andrus, and we'll be discussing what we mean when we talk about building beloved community and what some of the church vitality practices are that will be featured in Vital and Thriving. This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between Newbigin House of Studies and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information.